0: Hello, everybody! Welcome to the episode of Elixir Mix. I'm your host Alan Weima, and again, we have some other hosts over here. We have adi Anger, hello, and Sasha Wolf, hello, and we have somebody who came over to the dark side, another fellow podcaster,
1: Bruce Tate. Bruce, welcome. Hi, everyone. It's fun to be at this on this side of the conversation. This side. Was there another side? Yeah, who was that Elixir Mix way back in the day? Who was oh. one
0: of the hosts? So you're on the other side of the other sh- uh, side of the table, right? The other uh, side of the table. Yeah, where are you actually at the moment? Because I think I've seen you before. You were traveling all over the place, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's so I lived for for a number of years in Austin, Texas, and then spent most of my professional career there. And in 2016, moved to Chattanooga and been there ever since. Well, and last year we took a trip, but we could talk about that a little later. Okay. So we so my wife and I were kind of feeling covid. I'm a high-risk person. You could probably hear the congestion in my chest, right? So I have asthma, mm. I have heart disease, and a whole lot of other bad stuff. And so I was really convinced that covid would kill me. And Maggie was definitely convinced that covid would kill me. And so we were doing quarantine in in a house and we were both going through some pretty heavy times, I would say. And I walked down to down the stairs, and I asked Maggie what she was reading. And she said, I'm reading this book called From What Is to What If. And it's a city planning book, but it's also at its core a book about reimagining, a book about about looking at life from, from a different direction, from instead of why can't something happen, it's what if it did? What would all the other things, what other things would have to happen to make that so? And so she was reading this and, and I was too depressed to really care. But two weeks later, I walked down the stairs and she was reading another book called The Great Loop Experience. And I about fell down the rest of the stairs, right? Because, um, you know, this is a trip that's been that we've kind of talked about like, oh, someday maybe we'll climb Mount Everest knowing that it's never going to happen, right? Like, wouldn't it be cool if... But when the planner in the marriage gets an idea and starts planning, then things get real, really quickly. And it did for us. The Great Loop is a loop around the eastern United States. And so we live on a river called the Tennessee. We lapped the eastern United States. So what that looks like is we went down the Tennessee River, and then we took a left between Mississippi and Alabama. And all the way out to the Gulf of Mexico, all the way around Florida, all the way up the Atlantic seaboard into Chesapeake Bay. We spent a little bit of time with Frank Hunlith and his daughter there. And then we went all the way up to Delaware and we cut across this tiny little canal just south of New York called the C&D Canal. And so ran around the Jersey Shore into New York City, up the Hudson River, across Canada. And then down the river is the Illinois, um, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And I think the Ohio is in there also. So, yeah, we spent nine months traveling by boat, doing pretty much working from from there. So we did, we we traded our 2,000-square-foot quarantine to about a 200-square-foot quarantine. But we had a bigger back porch.
0: It's quite a trip. I mean, uh, how does it actually work? Because you obviously cannot just keep doing that. You have to have a lot of supplies. You have to stop. I'm sure you get maybe a little bit tired of always rocking on the boat, right? You have to actually get off and touch land once in a while. I mean, how does that actually work in like a typical day?
1: Yeah. So the trip is built in two primary ways. One is that if you take the trip in about a year, you're essentially going to travel about one day in three, and you could you could travel longer distances you could also decide to you know, travel shorter distances and and you know spend fewer days in port but yeah, most of the time you're seeing the country, you're um you're buying provisions, you're doing maintenance, you know, because boats boats need maintenance. And so it's really built to explore places. And so and, and we did. And the other thing that's interesting is that the the trip is built to summer in the north, to winter in the south, and then to use the other seasons traverse between the two. So yeah, that's kind of the general shape of it. Okay.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know. I don't know if everybody would want to do that. I mean, I think the first question is the developer did you actually have decent internet connection when you were traveling around?
1: <laughs> yeah. That's funny. It's the developers and the programmers asked that question. Nobody ever asks that question. You know, everybody has other questions, right? But the developers what's your internet like? And it yeah. turns out we had this thing called a pep wave, which you take a you take a modem. It has a couple of slots in it. Mm-hmm. it well, actually, has four slots. We use two of them. And you can plug in SIM cards for mobile access, right? And so okay. we, had, we had a Verizon card and an AT&T card because those were the best two providers. And this system called a PepWave would actually stitch together the best possible signal between the two. So if I had one of the two, then I was pretty good. We had planned to actually teach the corporate Groxio classes from... Uh, you know, to kind of get a bed and breakfast or something like that. And that never happened. We always had good enough internet import to make a, a stable, reliable Zoom call. Yeah, so we, we taught four or five professional courses, professional trainings on the loop. And
0: this is a good lead into the, the next topic on my mind, which is, I mean, you're running uh, Graxio, right? Now you, you um, wouldn't tell us what, what it means until until now so that's maybe let's digest that what is what is groxio exactly
1: yeah so if you Google the word grok g r o k and groxio is g r o x right but if you Google the word grok you you see that it means to intuitively understand and if you tack on the i o and hold your head sideways a little bit you can you say that looks a lot like ones <laughs> and zeros right so grox Ones and zeros means to understand programming, and so the um, the site is built to to kind of satisfy another life goal of mine. You know, one was to do the loop, but. I am really in my element when I'm teaching, when I'm helping somebody make a breakthrough in their career, when I'm really improving their station. Right, so I, I, that's what I really want to do. Um, you know, I think that through my publishing career and and through my early involvement in Elixir, I'm pretty happy with my technical legacy. Now I really want to work on my social one. Right, and this is a great way to do that. So. One of the things that we do at Groxio is we we publish content and we give a lot of that away to kind of advance the community. But we also do we do personal and professional trainings. The personal trainings is you basically join a group of somewhere between three and eight people. So they're very small courses. They're on Zoom. They're very short. But they're intensive so that so that we can we could we could we can bind together pretty tightly. And one of the things that I like to do is invite underrepresented programmers into that community. So in this way, we kind of knock two things We kind of knock off two things off my checklist that are really important to me. The first is we can increase the diversity in the Elixir community. But second, we can help people take charge of their careers by plugging them into an environment where they're bonding tightly to people around them, right? So we kind of of solve both those problems at once. How do you introduce somebody to the concepts, and how do you in, introduce people to the community? How do you provide access? And so um, that's
0: what we do. What I find interesting is that obviously a lot of your, your the students that join are beginners to programming, right? Or at least a good amount.
1: Yeah, yeah. a good amount. So I would probably say um, probably a third are brand new to programming, and about um, two thirds are. Probably from early to late intermediate, a few advanced people. And the advanced people, I mean, we're kind of looking for people who don't want to break through the things that you don't find in the documentation, right? Like Index comes along, what does the math model look like for Index? How do you do how do you do math in a functional language in a way that's fast enough for something like machine learning? Or what does the OTP abstraction look like? It's it's pretty easy to to see what the functions are, what the library functions are in something like OTP. What we don't spend a lot of time talking about with libu and OTP and Scenic and frameworks like that is the behavior that wraps around these concepts, right? And so by providing like a class situation or a video situation, You can do things like role-playing that says, hey, this is what happens throughout the whole lifecycle of an OTP application. So we spend a lot of time doing those kinds of things and... And intermediate developers really appreciate that.
0: One of the questions people often have is, is as a beginner, what's a good first language? And usually you hear the typical Python, JavaScript, maybe even TypeScript. Some people say you should go to C or C++, right? I think all those are somewhat valid. But Elixir to me is so different than other languages that I've ever used that I find it hard even for intermediate to advanced developers to even get started. Now, do you you feel that it's a great language for a beginner to start with? Because it is quite different and not many people around them would probably actually even know
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of friction, right? And so you look at you look at a couple of things, right? And it's almost like you have to look at at the friction alongside the things that you get out of it. And and if you look at if you ask people why they code elixir, very few of those people would say because it was so it's so doggone easy to learn, right? <laughs> Most people are going to say because because it made the hard problems easy, because I could build a self-healing system without all of the infrastructure. Because when I coded my first application, it stayed up for several months before we had a major production issue. It's, those are the, the reasons people adopt Elixir. But that being said, there are a lot of things that are really nice for new Elixir developers of certain, of certain types, right? Like one of them is that it's a functional language. So when a value goes in, a value comes out and, and the same inputs are, are basically, when you expect them to, are gonna give you the same outputs. And that's so nice, right? It's especially in today's world, when you're thinking about things like concurrency, immutability, to have something predictable like math is predictable is is a is a pretty powerful thing. So I think that there's that give and take. And then also, I think one thing that wasn't true that's becoming true of Elixir is that the tooling is so good, right? Like I, I recorded, I'm working on the um, next generation of the Elixir course for Groxia right now. And I think that we're going from like 12 videos and something that's book focused to something like 50 videos and something that is a little bit less focused on books, but we're using a lot of live books in that. And the idea of a live book is so powerful because it combines all of these little ecosystems in Elixir and kind of builds off, one thing builds off off another, right? So for example, you have this excellent documentation that's built into Elixir itself and most of the Elixir libraries. Because Jose said, that's important to me. And so um, I'm going to build the tools and I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to document things as I go. And then it became important for people to document as they went, right? And then we included those tools into IEX with, with this thing called this this module called IEX Helpers. And so you could type H and then a um, a module name or H and a function name and even arity, and IEX knows what you mean. But when I'm using Livebook, <laughs> I have this little setup block, and I can say, import IEX Helpers. And then suddenly I have access to all the documentation right at my fingertips. And so those tools are starting to come at such a rapid rate that elixir is beginning to become one of those languages that yeah it has a lot of complexity but it also has a lot of a lot of tooling to help you understand that complexity especially if you're willing to Actually do things that you do elsewhere in your life, hire professionals to help you kind of get over the hump of the core abstractions and the core ideas. Going on
0: the topic of tooling, because I was looking at my phone because I was looking for a message. I asked uh, somebody I knew recently who's been doing Elixir for about a, a year or so, and I asked them, you know, how is it going? And I thought it was very interesting. This the first time he ever said this. He actually, he came back with kind of a little bit of a complaint. He said the tooling is not quite there, which is the first time I've ever heard somebody ever say that. But he specifically brought up about the language server and the types coming in pretty soon. So that was his kind of reply back about how it's going with Elixir. And do you have any thoughts on those?
1: Yes, it's this, so this is the this is the tension between a, a dynamic language and a static language, right? It's there I've never been in a dynamic language community where everybody said, "Hey, the IDEs are great," right? Because you don't have all that type of information underneath. And in fact, you have the opposite where I could type 97, comma 98, comma 99, I cram it in a binary, it looks like a string, ABC. I cram it into a list and it looks like a char list, ABC. And nobody knows why, because there's not enough type information built into this construct right but on the other side of the dynamic languages like ruby and elixir there's a whole lot less friction when when it's time to build things like like functions and when i mean it's there's a cost to being dynamic right that i i can't the the debugger can't catch as many of the bugs for me but there's also a tremendous benefit in that it reduces friction it reduces friction for beginners pretty tremendously
0: yeah, it's it's interesting you're talking about that because um I've been trying to get a, a Dart developer to check out Elixir and again you know it's it is a, it is a type language right so the first thing he says is no types I don't like that and also I mean it is nice having the the type specs but then you have to make people fill that in. And then, if you milk them, fill it in, what you get is a bunch of okay tuples with just a map, not telling you what keys are going to be in there, but just map or list, even an empty list, not telling you what's inside the list. All this kind of stuff.
2: And then you also get dialyzer errors, which honestly, like you feel, I feel like you need to be an oracle, like like, yeah. like a medium to decipher those. I, I got pretty good at this point at like reading dialyzer errors and understanding what dialyzer actually wants to tell me, but it's not intuitive not always.
1: Right. And this is this is the idea of taking a dynamic language that's really cool and say,
2: mm.
1: "Oh man, I sure sure wish it was a type one, so I'll bolt on this thing, right?" And so I think it's going to it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of the of the typing research and and if it's uh, first, if it's possible, my guess it probably is. And second, is what is the ergonomic impact going to be on a language that was built from the ground up, not worrying about those, those kinds of things? So we'll see. We'll see. Whatever it is, uh, whatever the answer is, I mean, I'm going to enjoy the ride. This is the first time we've
0: gone from research to development. I think that was the term he used, Jose, was development,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a, I never bet against him though. <laughs>
0: Adi, you're going to say something a while back.
3: Yeah, that's fine. I think I'm just going to expand on what Bruce was saying about, like, I think the tooling being getting more mature. And and if you look at like the languages that are considered easy for entry level or beginners, they don't. It's very rarely you'll find a language that just came out two uh, two years ago and now suddenly it's like adopted as like a beginner friendly mm-hmm. language. Elixir for a language that came out in 20 end of 2014 was the 1.0. It's I mean, already we are... The tooling is, like, so amazing. If you look at, like, like any other dynamically typed language, (laughs) there's no comparison. It has a live book. I mean, Dialyzer. I mean, I was looking at the language server, and I've been working with Python a little bit. Elixir language server is, like, actually better functioning overall in the Python language server and which actually there's so many and uh, there's no consensus. That's probably one reason why. But yeah, I think it's just adoption is the last part now that all the tooling is left. Once more companies start adopting Elixir and it kind of starts becoming in more normalized, it we will I really think we'll see it more in you know academic places. My university actually just introduced that as an Elixir as an elective, which last year, which I was really excited about. So yeah, hoping it starts becoming more of like a, then more a norm in like the first or one of the earlier languages?
1: Yeah, sometimes I think people get a little bit too stuck on adoption. I think that Elixir with the community size that we have right now, it can be fine. I think that we will see adoption. And the reason is that there are so many interesting things happening with critical mass and quality on so many different fronts, right? So if you're doing if you really have to churn through a lot of data and build data, effective data pipelines and things like that, you know, you have the whole like the Broadway stack and everything that goes with it. If you if you have to do machine learning, even if you didn't build those models yourself, that stack is just they they solved they solved some problems not the intuitive way, not the easy way, but the way that kind of that kind of allowed them to layer onto core abstractions and ideas and they introduced this new thing called a def end that makes it so kind of painless and seamless. And so we're starting to pick up pace there and then um, if you're not using like the NX and, and the bumblebee machine <laughs> learning is still on the table. Because you have this thing called Bumblebee, which allows you to consume models in other other languages. And so all of these things are going to increase the communities. But it's not critical that they do, right? With what we have, we have a critical mass. And this isn't the days of the Java language where everything had to be compatible. It was like one true language that in the darkness binds them, right? It's not like that kind of a contract. It's like since we're building on top of open standards and open ideas, and we're used to building systems that can cut across these things. And we have some we have some some common infrastructure. And even even like the JavaScript that sits on top is is the common infrastructure, it's It's a different world. And I think that we're going to be okay with with the adoption levels that we have.
2: Yeah, I just want to do plus one on what you just said, Bruce, because the one thing I keep being impressed about in the development of Elixir is how things that were built sometimes A decade ago, now get used again and and to layer other things on top. Because I still remember when I started with Elixir that, for example, we had daytime and naive daytime. We still have daytime and naive daytime, and daytime by default also also always only has uh, UTC times, right? And I think it was a few versions ago that they like added the whole ability like to have different calendars plugged in, right? Like just to, for example, use TZ data to plug in a different calendar. And that is, I feel that there is, there goes so much thought into coming up with these layers to make them extensible down the road. I mean, just take a look at how the whole macro um, system is working. Like, a, a ho- like most of the language constructs we just take as a given with or if or all of those things are just macros and anybody could write those. And still, all of that kind of comes together to form a coherent whole where I've seen, I mean, we <laughs> have seen in other languages, I think the worst example would probably be with Python 2 and Python 3, right? Like where they had that breaking change and then people kept using Python 2 and Python 3 and it was like a little bit hex on top of hex. And in Elixir, you don't see that that often i mean yeah we have a few rough edges especially when it comes to compatibility with erling charlis something you just (laughs) mentioned earlier right that can kind of be surprising especially to newcomers but all in all i feel there especially what jose has been doing is so much thought about how do all of these pieces compose together without having the level of friction you sometimes see in other technology stacks and that is that's just a genius, honestly. That's just
1: genius. <laughs> so I used to say that Jose was BB King, right? And the idea the idea is that great guitar players are great, not because of the notes that they play, notes that they can cram in, right? But because of the air they leave, the notes they don't play. Right, and and you could have some some languages like Perl, where everything is in it, or like Scholar, <laughs> everything is in the language, and pretty soon the language suffocates, right? But now I think it's, you know, there's there's definitely a little Mozart going on here too, right? It's like um, all the layering and all all the concepts that are cut the right way, so that you know five ten years down the road they actually work together. I mean, who would have thought that you could take that you could take Elixir. Rip the number system out. Rip the you know the the core storage elements out. Replace them with with tensors and um, data types that have nothing to do with with the numeric types in Elixir and have something that's not only coherent but that's actually super super high performance because of of you know the. A couple of core features, right? Like the the protocols, the the macros with a with a deaf with a def instead of deaf and the foresight to write this in such a way that it's not, this is deaf, but this is deaf in machine learning. And we're going to special case it in this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't do Python 2, right? <laughs> he did <laughs> yeah. he did another layer that's explicitly another layer, but that works with all the other ones. And I, I don't know how he does it. Yeah, I quit betting against them many years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but now I'm starting to think about, I think it was Dave Thomas quite a few years ago, came up with some interesting ideas about how we can even improve more upon Elixir by, I mean, we, everybody has that project, you know, you do your mix new and you have a bunch of files, which you never touch, you know, your, your main module of your application. I don't know, did you see this talk, Bruce? Was it the components one or was it? Was I think it, it was else? components one, yeah. It was quite interesting. I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting about how, yeah, maybe maybe we can do some more interesting kind of things. But I mean, when you're teaching the people Elixir, it's like, okay, here's this def module. You kind of talk about your app and then you move on. And It's like, well, what else goes there? And what's the point of that? and Why did this create this thing that's
1: kind of empty? People never ask this kind of question. Yeah, I, I love the question. Um, I need to be a little bit careful for myself, right? Because I get excited when you talk about reducing complexity. And so too many times I've seen myself take shortcuts on exactly the type of layering that we're talking about, right? Like like the good functional systems, there was a, gosh, I can't remember the paper, but the paper said something about there being a functional core and an imperative shell, and then some layer in between that looked like a protocol, and that this was the way to build beautiful functional programs. And that's what you saw in, in the Haskell world. And right now there's a bit of a movement in the Elixir community to collapse that somewhat. And I kind of rebel against that personally, not, not because I, I don't understand what those, what the models that are consolidating are doing, but because I don't trust myself with them, I don't trust myself to make the right separations at the right times. So probably what I would say is that I lean to using to producing more layers more often. But I try to I try to only create layers that that give me something in in the layering concept. So you know, for that reason, I probably wouldn't combine like what I would call in designing Elixir systems, the OTP, I call the OTP layer, and the process machinery, and the uncertainty. All of that's the boundary. And the module itself, that's like an API layer and the functional core. I try not to collapse those those things together. I think you at least need to bring yourself to a point where you can access those concepts, those layers conceptually. But again, those Dave Thomas is way smarter than I will ever be. And, and so he's probably got something there.
0: Yeah, to me, it's just like there definitely is some files that get created, and I'm like, I never touch them since once as soon as the first data project ever gets created, even for like kind of filling out some documentation or whatever, they just kind of sit there. And when he gave that talk, I was like, Yeah, what the heck is this file, and why is it here? Like one of the first frameworks I ever picked up was Ruby on Rails, and I talked to somebody about it, and they called it, Yeah, it just basically craps on your hard drive is what his words were because all these files go everywhere, and I felt a little bit like that. It wasn't as bad, but a little bit like that with some of the files. But I mean, definitely the, the excess file is so much nicer to work with. And I think what you usually have to do is work with like, I don't know, like it was a list of tuples or something to configure stuff. Oh, my, oh my God, I'd, I'd go nuts with that. I don't know how these guys, these Erlang developers can do it. I'm so happy we have what we have now. But I mean, there's a lot of nice stuff that, that was brought in as, as we've been saying. I still feel like there's still more things that we can do. But I do remember hearing a couple of people saying like, okay, yeah, we can do some of the stuff, but we don't want to stray so far away from Erlang because that could rock the boat. Like, Have you heard about this before that we want to kind of, I want to say the word play ball, but we want to play nice with Erlang people. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about, about this?
1: Yeah, I have some some really big ones. I think that that's, that's right. And that the Erlang ecosystem is providing a lot of value to the Elixir ecosystem, maybe even the most important piece, the kind of the OTP and the fault-tolerant piece. And there was a, there was a time before Elixir 1.0 when some in the community were trying to push Jose towards 1.0 now, right? And he waited. He waited for a key Erlang feature, which was Maps. Right. And I think that that was one of the last things that got added to the Erlang language. And, you know, they weren't so important into the Erlang community because they were dealing with different kinds of data because of the types of problems that they were solving. But once Elixir was going to be built on top, Jose had, had the foresight and really the experience in dealing with, with web type systems and database type systems that, that show up a lot in, you know, this particular space that, that we're in that maps were going to be everything and they were right? So I would say that caution is warranted and has served us very, very well over the years. And again, I'm just one guy and... You know, there are are infinitely smarter people out there, but that's the way I think about it.
2: I also think I mean you, you already see some some influence from the Elixir community even beyond this, right? I mean, look at for example how how you had to, used to have to write dynamic supervisors, and at least that, that is something, right? Where we now have a module that is a lot easier to use and not lot less with a lot less complexity, a lot less pitfalls. So I I feel the the approach there. Honestly, so far, it has been paid off. So I agree with you, Bruce, that that I can understand that it might be frustrating for some engineers too, to receive a comparatively slow pace of innovation on that particular front. But I mean, the, the results speak for themselves. So I mean, look at what has been happening in the past year to our Free with the Erlang Foundation, right? But also now, like different languages, people from different backgrounds come to the same table to kind of okay, discuss how can we push the beam forward. And that could not have been happened if there was more of a bridge-burning approach <laughs> towards her <life. laughs>
1: I, I love the way that you said that. And I, I really like, I like what you said about the beam. I want to be clear, when we talk about the beam, we're really talking about the, the virtual machine. But mm-hmm. it's more than just a JVM, right? It's also this idea that things that communicate in this ecosystem get to take advantage of the self-healing aspects of the system because we all agree to a general contract, right? So I think that there are a number of new languages that have these libraries available, but they don't have the tooling and infrastructure and they don't really have the collective history of the Erlang family of languages. And I think that those things together are tremendously powerful and are really pushing all of the Beam languages forward. And I think that that's interesting, but it's not where where I've always been, right? So if, if you can look back at my publishing career, you can see a lot of things like a lot of books like, oh, for example, Beyond Java, right? It's Move Faster, right? Or like Better, Faster, Lighter Java, which is, you know, leave this EJB stuff behind and, and simplify and faster and we don't need committees and we don't need to work together. And, you know, gosh, over time, I've started to see the benefits of communities that work together yes through committees but also (laughs) with with good faith
2: i think good faith is like the number one thing here and i think there's a lot of that going around at least from the outside perspective from where i'm standing as an engineer looking into the inside of what what's been happening with the erling foundation there is a lot of good faith there there is friction but i feel it's it's professional healthy friction and that i do see sometimes erling engineers being like ah these elixir peeps, like the new kids on the block, they're questioning everything, right? But it happens with a lot of respect for what we already have. So we still kind of are in the same boat, which I think where the whole idea of not rocking the boat comes from, right? Like to have that buy-in because, I mean... The the Olang VM is an impressive piece of technology, and we wouldn't be here if that thing hadn't been battle tested over the last three decades. So you better not get on the bad side for people who actually really deeply understand what makes the that VM tick under the hood.
1: Agree.
2: Maybe coming back to what you said mm-hmm. at the beginning, Alan, about like these files again. I also see some. I agree with you. Some of those defaults feel. Weird and especially like the, that entry level module is something where I always delete that, right? <laughs> like when I create a new mix mix project, that thing gets gets chopped first. But you also see some some changes there in like just imagine how just remember how we used to do configuration with mix config, right? But there was now we have the in config module and we also have the runtime.ex config config file. So there is iteration happening on top of that. And I think even by default, you don't even create the compile time config anymore. I think that is like a thing of the past. You can still do it if you want to, but the default generation for new projects don't do that. So I also would like to see a bit more drastic changes on that front, which I think the language can be doing because that is outside of the the ballpark with the Erling engineers that say that. But again, I mean, coming back to what, what Bruce also said earlier, Jose has a pretty good handle on how to iterate and how to build on top without breaking things and with while, while also keeping maintainability and composability in mind.
1: Do you guys remember this talk that Jose that did, did? I think I, I want to say it was like maybe five or six years ago that was basically Elixir is done. I think so, it's, but it's, it's a while. Yeah, and, and the impact that that talk had on the ecosystem. Was kind of a signal that said, "Look, we're stable. We're stable. We're going to protect you from from churn. Go knock yourself out. Now's the time." Um, and that was, you know, by by slowing down, he actually sped up the greater community, and that was that was a really powerful lesson for me to see.
2: Yeah, I mean, like if you know that the ground beneath you is not going to shift, then you feel more comfortable investing into it, right? I think the exact opposite of what you can see there of, of to that approach, I guess, is what you tend to see in the JavaScript community. I think it has slowed down over the past few years. But I mean, there is a reason why we have that meme. Oh, you, you don't have a JavaScript framework, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, but even though Elixir was done, I feel like there was a lot more bigger changes that happened, right? right? We had quite a few iterations on configuration alone. I think that happened after he said that we're done. Right. Like yeah, it was always mixed config for, for for the longest time, and all of a sudden it's like, no, we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do that. And then now we just got import config instead of use config. I think it was their use config for a short time.
3: But isn't mix outside of Elixir standard library though?
0: Yeah, yeah, true, mm-hmm. sure, but it's kind of also part of Elixir. I mean, you you can use Elixir without mix, but you can't really deploy a release without mix with Elixir that I can think of. I mean, I guess you could probably you could do anything you want to do if you believe in yourself. But at the same time, I mean, it's easier to use Mix, right? But there's also a lot of other things too. And also, like for Phoenix, right? It's been so much stable for a while, but we came up with the presence, and we got now components, and it just seems like yeah, we're done. But maybe we're done with like the core functions, but that doesn't mean we're not done cleaning house. So they're knocking down walls and adding additions, and and doing all this stuff. And I feel like we're we're moving faster, but in I don't even know what you would call that, like in in Instead of with User functions end. pieces, with, with actual components of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Well said, Alan. I think that I think that what I was trying to Poorly say was that the announcement that elixir has done let the innovation happen on the next set of levels and yeah i mean especially with with phoenix (laughs) and i feel you (laughs) because we've been trying to keep this programming phoenix live view up to date with with all the (laughs) the changes right so um, that was it was a hard book to take on right we knew it was going to be going to be a beast right so we have written that book cover to cover about five times and we're probably we're doing another rewrite now. You know, I think that that there's maybe maybe one more major one in it before we nail down the major APIs. But yeah, it's. But I think that one of the things that made Live View even possible was that Elixir was stable enough underneath. You know, configuration changes and and you know the occasional. New functions aside, this was a really important announcement um, and idea in the system that that we weren't going to manage this thing like, say, for example, Ruby on Rails, right? Which is, we major versions have major breaking changes always, and that's that lets innovation happen, but it also it also was a limiting a limiting decision.
2: It just. I feel like what is a testament to like how these things are layered and composed together is you could go ahead and write a Phoenix application that kind of looks like Phoenix 1.2, right? You could still write it with with the newest Phoenix version if you wanted to. I'm not saying you should, but you could because all of it Different parts are still like fundamentally still there. Like a controller is still under the hood, just a plug. And you could again have view modules which use templates. Nothing would stop you from doing that. And while I agree that like on the surface Phoenix has been churning a lot and like also it looks a different from what it used to, like the, the the individual building blocks, the layers are all still there. Just again, it's like it was built on top and it was iterated.
1: safe components.
2: Safe components.
1: Yeah, 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 and and you know some of the layering. Is, so, like, if you've been de- depending on on code built by the scaffolding or the the code generation frameworks, yeah, yeah, um, you've seen some significant changes, right? Because responsibilities have shifted. For example, into core components, um, you have built in Tailwind now that um, that you can turn off, but um, you can't enable for other for other frameworks. So, yeah, and but but my point in the Elixir community is that Chris and the Phoenix team have done a marvelous job of saying, of signaling, Hey, you could write this book, Bruce, but this is going to change, Mm -hmm. right? This is going to change. We are pre 1.0. Like we didn't have that conversation, but by virtue of writing to the pre 1.0 version of Phoenix live view, um, you know, we knew it was going to, it was going to change a lot. Right. We just decided that the book was worth writing because we thought it was important to have um, to have some support um, in the publishing community for that particular framework.
3: I'd
2: like to pick up a question that Adi asked before we recorded. And that is, Bruce, like, what, what is motivating you to keep being this, this this teaching force and this educating force inside of a community? What is it that is driving you behind that? And like, why why do you have this apparent in, in, inner drive to, to like teach the ropes to the next generation of engineers
1: yeah i think it's a it's a good question and it's it's um i mean i can't answer it with money right because that's (laughs) not where you know people don't pay for content these days i can remember gosh let's let's say that if you had a similar book um that was written you know even a decade maybe maybe two decades before It would it would have ten times the sales, right? Because there there weren't as many information sources. Amazon is a different animal. Things get uh, bought and shared around. Videos are very much. About ten years ago, I went to a conference, and I'm not going to say the 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 name of the conference. Probably the people in this room wouldn't wouldn't even know. But there were 403 people, and 400 were white males, and that's okay. I mean, I'm I I don't think that there's an inherent value judgment there but i do think that in order to make the most that if there's a if there's a smaller community we're better if we're more integrated i mean if you look around this this room and see right it's um it's so representation has been really important to me and i've been kind of noodling on how to solve this problem for the past 10 years or so and so the idea that i can take these this these professional trainings and i can offer just 20% of my unsold, or I can offer unsold tickets, which is just twenty percent of my total, and really move the needle. And I can look up and see the Croxio students, you know, on the, uh, you know, behind the podium for keynotes and talks, and they're talking a listener conference. They're getting major jobs. They're making they're making impacts on you know some of the some of the communities that, that are building the software that we're talking about. I think it's much needed, and I think it feeds my soul. And so, if I'm curious about something, I'm curious about Elixir, and I get to do work that feeds my soul on a regular basis. Um, that's just that's a good place. That's a good headspace for me to be in in 2023. I mean, there's there's enough hate flowing around for all of us, right? But but for us to to um, to be able to agree on something, you know, I I couldn't do this thing, and now I can. In a community of other people that are doing the same thing, it's just—it's very rewarding and it's very exciting for me. I
2: I think that's beautiful, and I also think that is something that that our that the community, Felixer, but like the larger tech community at whole should could do well embracing more.
1: Yes, do well by doing good, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the Graoxio model, and that's 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 exciting to me.
3: Yeah. Again, what is? Yeah, it's it's it was. Yeah, it's just awesome to hear this, Bruce. Like, I think it's also like one of the good things about how you teach and how you uh, communicate. You know, y- your passion to people you're teaching. It's a, It's like almost like a like viral. Like induces that same passion into the people you teach, so they further go and you know teach others. So it's like a multiplicative effect, like exponential impact in the community. So, yeah. The real 10x developer. The real 10x, 100x engineer, yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I I hate the 10x comparison, but... <laughs> yes, I but, did it
2: ironically. I did that ironically. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But I love the idea, right, that we can be more and that we can have to leverage as developers. So, all you have to do is, um, if, you, if you find yourself going to Groxio, just look at the testimonials and see how happy people um are relating to each other on on those te- testimonials and and I mean if you could do that every day if you could make people have breakthroughs that define their careers every day why wouldn't right and so that's that's um you know it's fun to me that Groxio has been this place where people come to say, I want to take my elixir career to the next level. It's really a powerful and exciting thing for me. And to be able to layer on the social good on top of that mission is just, it feels good, so I do more. And
2: I just want to circle back because I said it in passing the show that like I'm not very fond of this whole i 10X idea, but I do believe that there are engineers out there that if they focus on like teaching other engineers, unblocking them, getting them faster, right? Like helping them being the best possible engineer they can. Those are the people that if you would have want a title like a 10X developer, those would be the people that, that help other people be faster, be more integrated and have a coherent team that's working together. Yeah so yeah. yeah.
1: So what you're talking about though is not a 10x developer, it's a 10x person. Yeah. Yeah. Right? 100%. It's, it's yeah, the culture, right. right? If you get if I mean, culture yeah, right. culture is going to eat profits every every day of the week, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so you get those you get those people who get excited about making the people around them better and by making them happier and more successful, I mean, that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, but there's something else that also comes to my mind, which is uh, I think we also focus a lot on the programming part of our work. But that's not always, I feel like that's sometimes the least valuable of our work, if that makes sense. The most valuable to me is always about the communication and actually solving people's problems, which I think a lot of us forget about. I mean, this is Elixir mix, right? But at the same time, I mean, we're we're getting paid to do Elixir to solve somebody's problem, not just to have fun, right? Yeah. And it reminds me of, of this conversation I had yesterday where, so this guy's working with Flutter. He says he wants to do a lot of Flutter. He wants to get better in Flutter so i'm trying to help him with that but at the same time he's he's quite young so he's got a get some, he's got to get basic developer skills to begin with. And I was just a little bit in shock and awe about something that, that happened, right? So specifically, uh, the font was not rendering properly. So I don't know if you know about Flutter, but it's really all UI-based framework, right? And the fonts weren't running properly. I said, can you you know, fix this? Oh, it's a library's problem. It's not my fault. I'm like, but this needs to match the design. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to get better at Flutter, but it's like, yes, but that means you need to also get the problem solved. And he went as far as saying that I think Figma is broken because obviously it's not rendering the same as the Figma design. And I'm thinking to myself like, <laughs> I wish there was a way that we can somehow get some developers up to speed about, hey, I know you want to get better at programming, but sorry to, to break your 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 dreams when you're younger. It broke my dreams for a short while. Most of my job is about communicating and making solving things for people as much as i'm going to put my head down not talk to anybody and keep hitting on a keyboard most of my life is really about talking and uh solving the stuff but i mean yeah. that is something that. i think we need to figure out how to how we can do got to care about the people
1: right yeah it's all about i mean that's that's our job and that's yeah and i guess going back to your question sasha that's why i do it. it's it's all about the people
2: yeah, I'm more than 100% but with, with you. I also tend to, like when people are t- ask me what I'm, what I'm doing, I and mean, I do say that I work with software, but I usually describe myself as a problem solver. And the best way to solve a problem from my point of view is not writing software, Is that is to write a different way of solving it because software is very costly and very expensive. And if I can actually solve a problem without software, that's a win in my book. But if I have to write software, then I would write it with Elixir. <laughs>
0: Yeah. But it's kind of coming back to, to, uh, to Graxio, right? I heard that you made a recent hire. FYI, this is a segue. <laughs> <laughs> very smooth, very smooth. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so was, we did. So we, we hired Paulo Fallon. And that's, so that's the brother of Jose. And Paulo is actually working with us on doing some website design. He's doing some, Some marketing and he was a big personality and in the YouTube teaching space for for chemistry, uh, chemistry students in Brazil. And so if you want to have some fun, Google Paulo Valm and watch some of his chemistry teaching videos in Portuguese. I mean, you won't stop smiling for a week. And so he built this this teaching empire in Brazil and he's um, going to help us work on on conversions and site design and, and things like that. He's he's a brilliant man. He's a lot of fun of fun to be around with. And even though we just have him for part time, he's already making a tremendous difference. So all of the for those of you who've been around since Gracio 1.0, all of the new website changes are he's kind of helping us spearhead those. So he's he's a wonderful man and he's a fantastic hire. And thanks for noticing and asking, Alan.
0: Yeah, it came across my desk in some way. I don't know. I think a bird told me or something. But actually, something came to my mind because I did subscribe to Graxio before you were doing, besides Elixir, you're also doing other languages that you're showing. Because, well, first of all, people may not know this about you, but I think you got into Elixir because you did, was it a seven languages, seven weeks, is it?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So I did seven languages in seven weeks. And so I started with Groxio as kind of an online version of that community. But it turns out that most of my followers now are Elixir people. So everything that we did that was Elixir-focused was the new bestseller in the platform. So you know, it, it takes so much time and energy to get sharp enough at a language to be able to do any kind of video recording, to be fluent enough to make that go. We just couldn't sustain the effort for, for things that weren't kind of front and center on the overall site. So... We kind of shifted more towards Elixir. We'll probably be Elixir and probably some machine learning. Like I could see us um, doing a session on, on how to code with a, with, with assistance with AI assistants or something like that. But but we're going to focus on, on Elixir for a little bit here.
0: Yeah, it's, it's too bad because I, I thought that was really valuable because I always think that the more languages you learn, the more it expands your mind, gives you new ideas, you solve problems in different ways. I'm sure there's plenty of things that we have in Elixir that came from other languages. I mean, there has to be, obviously, Erlang stuff, but I'm sure there's other things, but it's not really coming to my mind which things there are. I'm sure, Bruce, you probably have a couple of ideas that come to you. Adi's shaking his oh, head. yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, obviously really oh, so, so, Ruby influence, of course, but
1: that's obvious. Yeah, Ruby syntax, right? There's the beam that's underneath, and and the self-healing part from Erlang. There's a, of course, Erlang has a Prolog legacy, so Elixir gets some prologue in that way. There's a Haskell legacy that's pretty strong. In fact, there was a uh, there's a talk called John Hughes Driven Development or something like that. I forgot who gave it, who gave the talk. It might've been Jose, but it was about property-based testing and about, about the formatter, and then a couple of the other ideas that that came from from John Hughes that are in in Elixir proper. There's the ML, which I think gave us the pipe operator. Um, Jose, correct me if you're if I'm wrong on that. There's closure, which impacted the way that, and and Lisp derivatives, which impacted the way that we write macros in the Elixir language, um, and. Some of the math behind the stream models actually came from Haskell. I think I was at a conference when Jessica Kerr was helping Jose write some of those libraries, maybe the Iterates or something like that. That helps unify the um, the streams and enumerables. I'm sure I'm not getting them all. Um, Avi, um, Adi, do you have do you have more on that?
3: No, that that's like more than what I had. Yeah, it's in the good good call out on to ML on the pipe operator too. That's yeah, good point. You know,
0: I had to go look this up because I always heard John Hughes, but I merely think about like Uncle Buck and all those other great movies that the director made, so I had to look up. Because I kept thinking, like, why, why the heck are we talking about John Hughes? Is, is there some one of the movies he did that was interesting? Why, why do we keep talking about John Hughes when it comes to programming? I remember hearing about this one before, though.
1: Well, next time we get together, I'll tell you a story about about how we got John Hughes to come to Gig City Elixir. <laughs> Getting kind of late, but Thanks. next time.
0: Which John Hughes? Did you, oh, yeah, obviously you got this one, not the other one. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, no airplane designers. <laughs> okay.
0: But yeah, uh, speaking of that, you also put on the Gig City Elixir, right? That's you who puts it on, right?
1: Yeah, more Maggie than me. <laughs> more my wife. And so I think that that conference is a little bit different than than most conferences because of our focus on its single track. And rather than curating talks, we curate speakers instead and let people talk about whatever they're passionate about. And so we tend to get pretty engaged engaging speakers and and we tend to do a pretty good job with hospitality. And I would say probably the closest conference to um, to the overall experience is the Impacts conferences uh, because they're you know kind of off the beaten path and and they're interesting venues, interesting speaker dinners and cool like cool experiences outside of the conference as well.
0: Yeah, just so look at the speaker list and you definitely have uh, quite a big inclusion too because I mean, not there's not a lot of people who stand out who are people of diverse backgrounds when I look at the Elixir community itself. and But you do have quite a few people who are fitting that bill, right? So even even for the conference, you're, you're actually trying to get a lot of inclusion and that's that's really great.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the conference is actually built to put some of the best programmers around the world in the same and around the same table with with the people in our mentoring program with the mentees and start fires. Right. That's, that's what it's made to do. Um, we didn't do as well with women at the conference because we didn't do as well with women at the podium. But in past conferences, we've had representation of of 20 to 30 percent of the attendees um, being women. And you know that's pretty stunning in today's numbers at a functional programming conference.
0: Well, this is kind of a question I have, right? And you kinda of play the, the cards that you have, meaning like I mean, is there enough women that that you're aware of that are actually in the community that could come? Was it just a, a problem of couldn't connect with them or they or maybe they turned down or what? I'm kind of curious about how you can get such an incl- inclusive background because I just first of all I, I'm in Hong Kong, right? So everybody around me is is, is I'm I'm a diverse one, right? So <laughs> in more than one way as you can yeah.
1: see. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that when there, when there are more women at the podium, we get more women at the conference, mm-hmm. almost without fail. And to get women at the podium, we have to have a, a bit more time to to recruit. We don't we don't compromise on quality at all, but we do um, specifically look for look to fill enough slots so that so that the the panel the, the the speaker list has has about the same the same breakdown as as the people in the audience that that we want the people in the audience to have. So and so, what we tend to do is we tend to develop a lot of speaking talent. And we also tend to go out and find people. you know, go watch a, a lot of videos and watch a, go meet interesting people and and talk to other people in the same positions that that we are. And and we also try this year we weren't able to because of the down economy, but we tried to get enough sponsors on board with us that we could actually pay the speakers their hotel and their flight because they're not (laughs) we're not making their lives better they're making our lives better right they're our product and and so we want to make sure that people feel good about being there and we invest in things like like our speaker dinners are at, at pretty nice places and we try to pick people up at the airport and do things like that and and when that happens people want to be want to be there and you love the speakers Love your attendees, and that's our formula. Always has been.
0: Now, for like the attendees, like how many people actually come to this? Because well, I watch the videos and I get a feeling like it's a very, it's not a huge conference, right? It seems really like everybody's quite tight knit. So it's, it gives me that small feeling, but I, I'm just looking at the angle of the speaker, right? I think I watched Amos' yeah. talk. And so I don't know what it's like. I'm kind of curious about how many people actually come.
1: So normal years, we have about 150. This year okay. was a little bit down, was was about 100-ish, 110-ish. But that's that's still uh, pretty respectable for an Elixir on the lecture conference. Typically, the way that we structure things, we don't have a lot of people standing in the corner. (laughs) The people that come are pretty engaged throughout and we try to plan things that way. Um, Don't ask me the secrets. Maggie is Maggie runs everything to do with hospitality. But yeah, we we try to we try to be as much of a hospitality conference as we can. And we try to be as inclusive as we can and we try to plan things that people want to be at. And it just means talking to people and making sure that they they feel included and loved.
0: Yeah, uh, For me, actually the most surprising thing that I do see on your speaker list is most of your speakers have pretty presentable uh, pictures that they gave to you. A couple that are interesting, (laughs) but most of them are pretty professional. I thought it was quite actually the most interesting part because when I do, I I do podcasting for other things and I always get very interesting photos when I ask them for a headshot. And sometimes you have to try to cut them out and it takes time because of the angles and everything else. (laughs)
1: Yes. So we have somebody that's pretty good at asking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, That's the big one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maggie's a secret weapon. Always has been. She's she puts on a tremendous conference. So I I was having dinner with with Jim Freeze at one point and he said, we're not going to do Lone Star Elixir next year. And this was like 2019 or something like that or 2018 uh, for the 2019 conference. And he looks at Maggie and says, I'm giving you this conference. And then he turns around and looks at me he says, did you hear what I said? I meant that I'm giving you point to Maggie, the conference, not you, <laughs> you, because he'd been to Gig City Elixir, he kind of saying, she she just has a knack for, for for hospitality and making sure people feel loved and included.
0: But Jim Freeze is still doing like the Elixir conference ones in the U.S., right?
1: He is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think that um, he brought Elixir comp back during some of the pandemic for, I think he brought it back to Austin, Texas for a little while. We'd like to go back to Austin and we'll see when that actually happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we've definitely used up most of our time already. I mean, we, we still got to leave some time for picks. I feel like I'm using up all the time. I and mean, Adi, is, do you, you want to... Oh, he's shy.
3: No, yeah, I I am. Yeah, the more I talk, the more the fanboy out of me will come out and, you know, probably stay for like five hours. But yeah, I'm ready for picks.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there is there anything that you think that we missed or something that you want to touch on before we we start the wrap up?
1: Yeah, so I'll give a pick and that is currently theboat.com currently theboat.com and that's important because that's going to talk about our book about the great loop experience right so if you want to help us launch it we're actually going to be with a small pub- publisher the pragmatic bookshelf and you know we're we're not known for for traveling memoirs, right? So, uh, but if, if you want to help us launch the book, sign up there and we'll let you know when it's ready to come out and we'll try to organize a mass buying where we all go get the book at the same place at the same time and see if we can't spike the uh, the ratings for an hour or so. Is this supposed to be a pun, by the way, the currently part? Currently is the name of the boat. The name oh, of the book. Oh,
0: okay. I'm thinking about
1: the current, like is, the water. Yeah, yeah, it's a three-way, right? It is... Okay. Uh, the current, the water, and currently meaning in the moment, in the present, and current being river people, right? So, so yeah, you get all those things. It didn't work so well when, or wouldn't have worked so well if if someone is saying, "Drowning passenger, could you repeat your boat's name?" Currently, currently what? Drowning passenger, could you repeat your <laughs> right? You never want to have an adverb there, <laughs> but uh-huh. we did. So the book will be called "Currently Away." The Website that we have to talk about it is called currently currentlytheboat.com.
0: Now, did, did you get bit by the the author bug? Because you're always writing books.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: it's, it's good to hear. I mean, I don't know why I just love books. I love collecting books, but never reading them. That's that's my hobby. I think a lot of people you'll, are like that.
1: You'll read this one.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm sure. I'm kind of curious about how you went through Chicago because I'm actually from that area. So I was kind of curious about how, how you went in and went around in that area. So i have to check it out. Yeah, you will. Adi?
3: Yeah, I guess let's do, a of Bruce here, I have a couple of Bruce picks. Uh, I mentioned one of the Groxia courses a couple of weeks ago. The one I'm taking right now is the NX course. And I know a couple of pe- uh, people who took it or at least bought it and are doing a few videos and they really liked it. So yeah, it's it's a good course. I've only watched a couple of videos, but it looks like a very organized uh, course that walks you through you know a lot of math and a lot of uh, deeper understanding of how just ML in general works and how NX works. So. Yeah, highly recommended. As we mentioned, the seven languages in seven weeks. I think there's the Elixir one is the seven more languages in seven weeks. If I'm remembering correctly, highly recommend that one because that also has Elm. Mm. And is that the one that has Closure? Or but oh no, Closure isn't the first one. But yeah, either of the books I would highly recommend. The first book that I read, and I, I mentioned this to Bruce once, said it, it. I finished that in a week, <laughs> and it just was like the inflection point in my coding career. I felt kind of faster, uh, more productive as an engineer. I I felt like I understood things more intuitively because I read so many languages. I had Prologue, Clojure, I think Haskell or Lang, maybe Ruby, I I don't know. I can't exactly remember, Bruce, correct me if I missed something, but that had like a bunch of these languages and it was like a great set of languages to do in a little, I mean, seven weeks or seven days in my case, to just like kind of like have that, what's the word like overflow of knowledge <laughs> so highly recommend any either of these books Bruce, you were saying something?
1: I can't believe that you were able to remember some of those so many of those off the top of your head
3: yeah I think I might have mixed a couple of those in the more or not but yeah those are pretty
1: that's impressive. what makes it so impressive right because you knew <laughs> that you were coming from memory you weren't reading from a list so that's that's pretty impressive
3: uh, yeah, but I think I, I think I missed four or five languages. But yeah, it's fourteen languages. Definitely something I would highly recommend. We talked about John Hughes, so want to give a, a shout out to Stream Data. Andrea, I guess from last week, wrote that it's a great, it's a simpler property-based data generation kind of approach to property-based testing. Highly recommend that. I know we have Proper, which has like the whole ADTs and stuff uh, if you want to really get into it. But people who are like new to property-based testing want to give it a try. Stream data is very user-friendly and very simple. I think I had one more pick. Right. Spawnfest. Registration is open. Sign up. It's like so awesome. You can use any of the Beam languages. Last year, last year we used Gleam and Elixir. My, my team used that. And this year, me and my wife are going to be taking part doing Elixir. So if you want to hang out with us, compete with against us or whatever, uh, yeah, sign up for SpawnFest. By the way,
1: Gracio typically gives away a subscription uh, for SpawnFest winners. So that's a $250 value.
0: Awesome. Yeah, for me, I've gone back to having to sometimes travel around Hong Kong and I got my uh, Steam Deck and I just recently were playing an old video game. I don't know why. I got all these new video games I got, but I like to play the old ones. So I had this one called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Kawabunga Collection. So it's got all the old arcade ones. And what's nice is it takes very little juice to run. So I had like 10% battery, but instead I still had like three hours of playtime because it just takes no effort to run that game. So if you have a Steam Deck and you need something to kind of play around with, I think that's a lot of fun.
3: That's really cool. Did you, I mean, if you play for three hours, you probably had a lot of fun doing it. But yeah, one of my... One of my problems, I guess, has been, like, I've been so into the newer video games, I haven't been able to enjoy the older ones as much. Maybe I'm, like, too materialistic or not mature enough to, you know, enjoy the simplicity sometimes. But I, I really wish I could go back and enjoy some of the older games. It's, it's awesome that you're getting a chance to do that. I guess you
0: could abuse all that travel time, right? So I might as well as do something useful with my time. Instead of taking a Graxio course, I'm going to play... Ninja Turtles instead. I would too. <laughs> By the way, I have been paying for the Graxio course every year, but I haven't been using it sadly. I just logged in and looked, oh my God, I've been paying every year and I'm using it. That's on my list now. Now now I got to put my Steam Deck back away and start start watching the courses now.
1: Yeah, the live view and the OTP are brand new. Awesome. Cool.
0: Well, I just want to say thanks, Bruce, for coming on. I was really appreciated uh, hearing from you and you made Adi's dreams come true. And sadly, uh, Sasha had to leave a little bit early, so he's not going to talk for the rest of the show. So now we can say things about him he can't rebut it but any anyways again thanks for coming on and uh, hopefully have again in the future
1: yeah, It was great to be here